Battlestar or Babylon 5 in a while, you gotta listen in. It's a sci-fi diner classic, voices from a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's a sci-fi diner classic, bringing you voices from the past. No, we ain't here, I think. It's a sci-fi diner classic, don't give me no news, just give me interviews and nothing else. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Diner Classic. Now, just like I need another episode to put out in the Sci-Fi Diner feed, but one of the things that I've been tossing around for a long time is that, you know, we're now at, what, close to 110 episodes. I think we're, we just recorded 108 with Sally Kellerman this past week, and all the way back to our earliest episodes in Sci-Fi Diner, episode 17, we began recording interviews. And while the news of these episodes is sometimes lost and old and dated, the interviews many times hold value in on themselves, introducing you to the people that kind of make science fiction, the things that we kind of lose over time. So as the introduction kind of played with there is that, you know, we don't want to forget these people or even these shows necessarily that they were on or they talked about. Kind of, and some of them have gone on to do many other shows beyond this, and some of them kind of have faded away. We kind of want to do the Sci Fi Diner Classic here to kind of highlight just the interviews. So, no news, just the interview with the people. And it'll be the older interviews we're starting with first and slowly moving up to some of the newer ones because obviously we're going to be still doing our news and interview show like we've been doing at least at this point. Um, I debated with, you know, separating those episodes all together and then it eventually get rid of the classic. But I thought I'd try this as something new. So let me know what you think about it. Our interview tonight that Miles and I are going to be bringing you is an interview with uh, John Broughton from Starship Farragut. So if you don't know anything about Starship Farragut, Starship Farragut was, is, is an independent fan film series based on the original series of Star Trek. Starship Farragut focuses in on the crew of the USS Farragut, a Constitution-class starship, NCC 1647, commanded by Captain John T. Carter, who is played by John Broughton. So John Broughton is kind of the director for it, but also the captain. Um, I know his role's changing currently because we caught up with him at Shore Leave just this past year. But this was recorded in May, May 30th of 2009. This interview was recorded. And our very first interview, so you might hear us bumbling around just a little bit in it. This interview first appeared in episode 17. And I believe that's about it. I don't have a lot, I don't have a lot else to say about it except that enjoy. And if you've never checked out Starship Farragut or you are, haven't really checked out any of the fan films, they are really well done. And you can just go to www.starshipfarragut.com to find out more about Starship Farragut. Um, and we had done a couple episodes back to back. We did like Star Wars fan films and then we did Star Trek fan films. And so this is, this was in a segment about the Star Trek fan films and him talking about what goes into making it? What does it take to pull off something like this? And I mean, if you listen to us long enough, you know that we are fans of the fan films. We've, we've interviewed a bunch of different people about fan films they're doing, and you'll probably see some more of that in the future. So 
this is where I'm going to you know, step off and um, enjoy the interview that we have with John Broughton on this episode, our very first episode of the Sci-Fi Diner Classic. Captain's Log, Stardate 4847.3. The Farragut has been ordered to the Acasta system on a mission that exemplifies the best nature of our Federation. The only inhabited world is an icy moon orbiting the gas giant Solon. The Solonai, an ancient race of scholars and historians, have kept themselves at a distance from galactic politics and alliances for centuries. Now, for the first time, they have invited the Federation to meet with them. This is my first diplomatic mission as commander of the Farragut, and reports indicate the Solonai are friendly. Let's hope the reports are correct. Full stop, Captain. Thank you, Mr. Baker. We are with uh, John Broughton, from, uh, founder and executive producer for Farragut Films, and also portraying the role of uh, Captain John Thomas Carter. Uh, my first experience with Stargate, I mean Star, Starship Farragut, was seeing you and your crew at uh, Far Point 06. It was my first convention in almost uh, 10 years. I had heard of the Star Trek Phase Two forums that uh, James Cawley was going to be there. However, he was ill and couldn't make it. I did, however, uh, have the pleasure of meeting uh, John Broughton and his crew from uh, Starship, Starship uh, Farragut. You guys were able to have a room and share that with the folks about your first project. I remember uh, you had a teaser video showing. And at your booth, you had some uh, hand props. You guys who made phasers, communicators, uh, tricorders. I must say they were very authentic looking, and uh, I really admired the uh, also the, uh, the original series phase pistol that uh, phase rifle. I'm sorry that um, uh, uh, Paul uh, Sieber had uh, uh, built design after fashion from the, the original series uh, phaser pistol. Uh, the year after, I had the pleasure of seeing the premiere episode, the captaincy at uh, Far Point on Seven large group of fans. Even though I was just a fan, uh, I felt a proud moment uh, with you in getting your first film off the ground. The next year I went to Far, Far Point and Paul Sieber was gracious enough to give me a DVD of, uh, for One of a Nail, which I enjoyed very much and uh, thought it was just good Star Trek. Uh, so John, I hope uh, I didn't give too much away, but uh, tell us about yourself and your film company, Farragut Films. Um, Farragut Films is a non-profit um, film company that because of the licensing and copyright issues of Star Trek, we can't profit off these films. So, um, and coming up with this idea about five years ago to, or maybe it was actually six years ago to start this venture, uh, found out that in order to do it effectively, had to create a, a non-profit. So that was the, um, the, the origination of Farragut Films. As, as president, I manage and oversee the group a group of all the talented people, um, those being Mark Hildebrand, Mike Bednar, Holly Bednar, um, working with Michael Strzok of Neo FX, we're a, and there's many other um, talented individuals that work with us, um, but manage the the company that works to put on Starship Farragut. Great. Okay, now, as a nonprofit, does that mean that you can't earn any money at all or everything has to come through donation to cover costs? Well, that's, that's been the rule of thumb. It's been the rule of thumb. There's nothing, there's never been anything written, uh, from Paramount films, but the, the rule of thumb and talking with people and, and those people as well is that as long as we don't profit any off any of our films, um, they've, they've kind of waived the copyright infringement and intellectual property. But I think that one of the things that we've done to differentiate ourselves much more than some of the other film series out there is that a lot of things, 
although it is based on classic Star Trek, the foundation of Trek, a lot of what we're doing is, is original. Um, we, we don't have the Enterprise patch. It's not the Enterprise. It's the Farragut. Um, it's not Kirk. It's, it's Carter. And, and the music is, is, is not anything that was originally conceived by Alexander Courage um, or, um, um, or Goldsmith. It's by Hedron. So it's a lot of original things. It's the foundation of Trek and the concepts of what Gene Roddenberry created. And basically, we're playing in his backyard. And so because of that, I mean, there's, we, I think we've done a few things to, to differentiate ourselves even from the original series. So um, in terms of the copyright, we've tried to stay clear, but it's still tr- it's Trek, but it's not, if you follow me. Right, right, right. Now the name Farragut Films. Where did uh, where did that originate? Well, we were making Starship Farragut and, and trying to come up with a name. Um, it was just um, taking Farragut and just Farragut Films. Okay. And, yeah, right. it wasn't too much more than that. All right, good. Uh, you could have done your film, you know, your films in any timeline uh, in, in in the Star Trek mythos, but you chose uh, the original series. Why was that? Well, I'm I'm a big classic Trek fan. I always have, um, you know, even when Next Generation came up, and I, I grew up uh, with Next Generation. I was about the same age as Will Wheaton. I think he is exactly, almost to the day, about six months older than me. And um, so, in and I think when I was in, a freshman and in, in, um, high school, seeing him grow up, but I never really, I mean, I appreciated the Next Generation series but always loved classic Trek, and I grew up with it as a kid, um, even having converting our basement into a bridge, uh, making a taking a wagon and making it in a shuttlecraft and, and using laser tag guns for phasers and walkie-talkies for communicators. Classic Trek was what I grew up in, and just from syndication, I just loved that show. And to me, there was nothing that had that magic, that chemistry, and it was always classic Trek. So if I was going to do this, it would have to be that. And, and coupled with the fact that I had all the costumes, I had all the Trek costumes, I had props, I had all the props to do this. And I think it was part of the extension of both taking what computer technology and the Internet as a distribution point and, and seeing what people were doing, making their, their own fan films, whether it be from the Terminator or Batman or, or um, not Terminator, Alien, um, and, and, and Star Trek and Star Wars. And, and it's like you can make a very good quality film without the Hollywood budget. But I think also the extension of having a, a collection of, of props and costumes, and it's like, you know, what do you do with all this stuff? It's on, a, you know, in display cases. The next step is to use it in a film. So um, that's, that's kind of where it went. Um, and I pulled in my family and best friends to help kick off the project. Um, so it was always TOS. It was never a question that it would be next-gen. And I think the fact that it is TOS, it, it, it gives us some advantages because the set, sets are pretty straightforward as well as the costumes. They're not as elaborate like Next Generation. The costumes get a little bit more elaborate. Sets get more elaborate and more detailed, um, where classic trick things are a little bit more simplified. Cool. Well, what I liked about you know seeing... Some of the things you've done, some of the things that Phase Two has done, and Exer, 
there's still it showed there's still a lot of life left in the original series. There's still plenty of things to explore, many stories yet that uh, to, to tell. So uh, you know, uh, yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you chose that direction because I've seen I've seen what you've done with it, and um, you, you know, I, I I've liked what I've seen so far from you guys. Well, thank you. Yeah. Now, did you have a defining moment or something that said, you know what? I want to make a fan film. I mean, what was the thing that kind of drew you to that place? I mean, I know you were into Trek as a kid and all that. And you, yeah. Well, I would have to. I would have to admit, I was most inspired by seeing Starship Exeter. Um, the concept of that, where to me it was just it was, uh, and I guess that they are revealed, revered as the grandfather of Star Trek fan films. Mm-hmm. When I saw Exeter, no doubt, I was inspired. The concept of a different captain, different ship. I was like, wow, and I just started to think about that for myself, and it just seemed so, so kind of like like straightforward. I was like, you know, I had an epiphany when I saw those stuff. I'm like, oh my god, because up until this point, everything was based that I had seen was always based on Kirk, Spock, and McCoy of the Enterprise, and you know, other people were kind of doing that. And when you see that, you can't help but think. It's a parody because only, in my opinion, only William Shatner can play Kirk and, and right. Leonard Nimoy, Spock, etc. And to see other people try to play it, it comes off as very parody. But if you take the concept of a different ship, different crew, and different adventures, you can put those people, different characters, and there's instant buy-in because you don't have anything to compare them to. You've never seen this captain. You've never seen this first officer. Right. You've never seen this engineer. So you can't say that that's not that person or that's not them because you don't have any basis of comparison. So it seemed um, to me that whole premise um, was my inspiration point, I'd have to say. No, that's awesome. And I can see I what figured, you're saying. I figured, that, I figured it had to be one somewhere in there. And I, I can see what you're saying with um, – I mean I love what the folks at Phase 2 have done. But I, reading some of the things on their forums, it's just some of the opposition they got just, you know – why 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 even touch in the original series? It's something sacred, um, you know. So um, it's, it seems to have gotten more acceptance down. But what, I mean, what you've you've done is taking you know, a different different captain, different ship, different crew, and really make it your own. Mm-hmm. And it's great because and and one of the things that I've really tried to do with the Carter character is make sure that he isn't Carter. I mean, in some of the episodes, I wanted to show that there's difference. I mean, he's. Um, for example, I mean, he, one, he grows, he has facial hair, his hairstyle is much different. But even in the fighting and, and a rock and a hard place, it was a, I mean, Carter can fight, um, but he fights differently. And then at the end, it was by luck. I mean, he's saved by, you know, the doctor. And I, I wanted to show you kind of different things. I don't think they would have done that in the original series um, where the final moment, well, they might have done. I mean, Spock would have certainly would have saved him. So I guess. I shouldn't say that, but there's certain things that one of nuances wanted to show differently. And just passing through, we have, um, which we showed in, in public settings. We haven't, we don't have it available for public download. But we show Carter coming into a bar and he's kissing the cheek by this Orion officer, and then she walks away. And she's kind of, it's implied that he's dissed, and that's something that Kirk would have, it probably wouldn't have showed on the series. Although they kind of did that in the movie. Uh, with O'Hur and him at the bar, him kind of getting this. But we want to show some di- things differently, and I'm trying to be very mindful that I don't want anything, I don't want anyone to show that he's playing Kirk. Um, and some of the scenes that in Exeter, 
Captain Garavik, there were some fighting moves and stuff that were very much Kirk-like. And I think even in the captaincy, there was a few kind of Kirk kind of moves. But again, trying to show some differences that he is, and, and maybe they would have gotten the same kind of training in Starfleet Academy. So, But really trying to differentiate these characters. Um, Smithfield is very much, she's kind of got a little bit of McCoy sarcasm um, and wit, but she's very much different than, than Scotty. I mean, this is, um, um, she isn't afraid to say this is her ship, ship as she reveres it, but, and she's not afraid to speak her mind. Um, and Tackett, the very much MacGyver-like uh, first officer, very kind of, kind of quiet, but very much in the sciences. And um, I actually, I, prob- I mean, I should let uh, Mike Bendar speak more on his character, but these characters are very much their own. They're not, they're not based off any of the original series characters. So I think that, and we've, through, through our four film efforts, I think we've done quite a bit to um, distinguish these people as being separate and their own. Now, when you now you mentioned that you've done about uh, your your four film efforts, what went into the planning stages? Who all was involved? Uh, maybe the core group of people is kind of involved uh, with like writing it and scripting it. And I know you're the executive producer of it, but um, but you've obviously had to do many other things, being a fan film, right? Right. I mean, it is it is very much a collaborative effort. Um, we run it, although I'm executive producer, we do have. We have monthly producer meetings. We get together. We talk. We're all locally, so we get together for either lunch or after work or on the weekends and stuff in addition to the regular meetings that we have. But when we – so there's a lot of discussion, a lot of valued input from all the members. Um, I did put together a roadmap of certain episode ideas, and they were just synopsis of, like, certain episodes. And – Basically, we've made, I think, all of them except one, which is the Potemkin Pass-Through, which will be our Mirror Mirror-like episode. The um, And I think that there's one called Feminine Charms we haven't made. But basically, I, I, wrote, I, I put together a roadmap of episodes and a quick synopsis. And um, most of the episodes have been written by other members um, of our group. Mark Hildebrand wrote For One of a Nail. Um, I started to work on the script for the captaincy, and then Paul Sieber pretty much wrote the, wrote the script for that. I wrote A Rock in a Hard Place, and Just Passing Through was written by Holly um, Bednar. So um, some of the ideas are there, or I, I may have came up with some of the general ideas, but it's been someone else who's written the bulk of our episodes. So, but it's very much a, a collaborative effort. Uh, we would read a lot of it. We'll sit around and read some of the scripts, and we discuss. So a lot of ideas are, in terms of the scripts, are discussed internally. Can you uh, tell us? Uh, you, can you tell us a little bit about each fan film you made so far? Now maybe like a little bit. Of a, you mentioned kind of a synopsis that you guys had worked on. Maybe just like an idea of what each one's about. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. We've made four film efforts. Um, the captaincy was the first one that was our pilot, and basically, it's a rescue mission to save Commodore Broughton and on a planet called Diatama Three. Um, Klingons are involved, and it's a rescue mission. Um, um, that's the first one. Second one was for one of a nail, where a the Solonai, a group of scholars and historians 
have invited the Federation to finally come back and speak with them. Um, during transport, a malfunction happens, and they are hurled back to America's past and meet with General Washington and um, have to get back and tack it, and Smithfield work to bring the, the crew back. Um, and there's a little bit of some, of course, with time travel, there's always a premise of either destined to go back or you've gone back and you have to, you've you screwed up the timeline, have to get it fixed. So that's our first time travel episode. The third one is called A Rock in a Hard Place. No, I'm sorry. Third one is technically would it be, would be um, just passing through, and that's the love, the comedic romance tale of how Tackett and Smithfield first met and how their romantic um, relationship started. And then the last one is a rock in a hard place, which um, which was Captain Carter taking the shuttlecraft out with Dr. Bishop, um, a renowned scientist, to investigate a planet for dilithium um, mining. And the Klingons are there. There's some excitement, fighting going on, and um, but it does get that episode gives a nice indication of Carter as a fighter and as well as a lover. Um, so that's it. Um, our next episode we're looking at is called Dan the Torpedoes, and Mark Hildebrand is working on that script, which we plan to film um, in February of next year. Right now we're focusing on getting our our sets completed. We have a lot of our sets done now, but we are finishing up the uh, bridge. We have the control center with the helmet navigation and the captain's chair, now we're building the full bridge. So between now, which is, I guess you could say June, to the end of the year, we're going to be working on finishing that so that we can go into next year filming. So, But one of the goals from this project that I had was because we are locally, it seemed that we should be able to produce two quality episodes per year, two film records okay. per year. Right. That was always the goal. And I felt that we could do it. And then when, once I started getting involved in the time commitment and, you know, a lot of people think of this idea, and I don't think they really can conceive the amount of time and effort that's in one of these film efforts. And, you know, a lesson learned was, you know, not to place so much emphasis on quantity as much as quality. So kind of trailed back, I still believe, and we're still, we've always, since the project has started, we've always achieved that. And we will this year with the two um, animated episodes of Starship Farragut, the animated episodes. So having episodes one and two released this year, we'll see, still keep in line with that that objective uh, while we focus on the finalization of set construction. So, um, But we do plan to go in full swing. We, we'll start pre-production work on the um, Dam and Torpedoes here soon um, in the early fall, September, October time frame. We'll, we'll kick in the pre-production and begin filming early next year. Oh, very cool. Now, you said that you are building sets. So the sets that you had in the first two films, uh, or the first, I guess, three films, uh, where did you pull those from? Well, we had some of the sets already. We had the captain's quarters. We had a ship corridor. Um, we built for Rock and Hard Place uh, a full-scale interior shuttlecraft. Um, so we had some sets. Um, we did... Uh, through a partnership arrangement with Star Trek New Voyages Phase 2, we did um, 
um, as part of that partnership arrangement, we did use their sets. And so the the bridge, um, the bridge, sick bay, and transporter room sets we used. Oh, very very cool. What what sets do you have built now? I mean, you said you have the bridge almost done. Um, what, what what sets do you have in completion? Well, right now we have the close up turbo lift set in the original series. They had a close up set for the turbo lift, and then they had the turbo lift set that is connected to the bridge. So we have the the close up interior um the i'm sorry we have the the close-up interior um <laughs> total set we have the captain's quarters we have the transporter room built the chamber is still being um worked of the transporter room but we still we have that set built we have a um, shuttlecraft and and as i mentioned the captain's quarters and or the captain's chair and the helmet navigation console so that's all what we have built today. Oh, very, very nice. Now, you, you, uh, your film studio, you moved down to Georgia. I think you originally based in D.C. Uh, uh, what motivated you guys to uh, move your operations in Georgia? Well, <laughs> I get this question asked so much. Um, for years, we were researching this D.C. area to find a soundstage, warehouse, some abandoned building, that was big enough to put permanent sets as well as uh, within our budgetary constraints. As a nonprofit organization, we have limited funds. And so having a, you know, something, and especially in this area, it was just not, we just not, we were not able to find a building that would work with our budget. So we started to look outside the D.C. area, and we looked at places in Cincinnati, Ohio, as well as in West Virginia. And um, Holly Bednar, one of our producers, um, contacted her friend who was a realtor in Georgia um, named Kimberly Watson. She identified Bill Gross of WH Gross Construction Company, and he had a building that worked with our, with our space limitations as well as our budgetary needs, and we were, he was able to work with us. So it really worked out well. And so a side benefit of that is the fact that Holly is now able to see her best friend, who she was reconnected through Farragut. Um, I have two family members, um, two brothers that have their families in, in Jacksonville, which is only 35 miles away. So, And the USS Farragut destroyer, DBG-99, is homeported in Jacksonville, Florida. Nice. So, I mean, you have it, it seemed like a very good omen how things worked out. So... It's just been a very good blessing on all fronts to be to have our permanent sets in Georgia. I mean, and, and the weather down there is so great. I mean, it just you know it's like going down to Florida. So when you go down there for filming, it's like taking a nice break. I mean, you got the ocean, you know, relative distance. I mean, it, it's just been a great blessing to be down there. Now, a month ago, you had an open house there for you know people want to check it out. I mean, I wish I could have seen it uh, uh, being the fanboy myself. Um, um, it, it sounded like that was received very positively uh, from the community. Oh, absolutely. We had over 400 people within, I guess, from the hours of 10 and 4 that we had the open house. Just a constant steady flow of people coming in um, to see our sets. It was a great PR event to do, give back to our new neighbors in St. Mary's who have been great. I think St. Mary's is the best-kept secret on the East Coast. Um, not a lot of people, I mean, people are 
learning about St. Mary's, but it really is a great place to go and visit. Um, so it was a great event to give back to the community to, to let these people know what the Star Trek Starship Farragut stuff is all about. Um, and there's a lot of the, there's a lot of fans in that whole Georgia, you know, Florida area now that is now being infused as part of our project. We now have some new volunteers that are involved, so it's it's helped us actually grow as an organization. Good deal. Uh, that's 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 pretty awesome. Then um, this may take a, a broad question, but uh, what does it take to make a Star Trek fan film? Uh, maybe, maybe calling it a fan film doesn't do it justice. Uh, a better word for be uh, an independent Star Trek film. I agree. I, I kind of hate the word fan film. I mean, it is at the end of the day, it is a, a but in fan film, the, the word fan kind of implies several things. It implies amateur, it kind of implies the geek factor, it implies some negativity about the work. But I think that as, as you kind of are on the same page, it's a film, independent film effort that is outside. We don't have any outside of Paramount, outside of the, the industry, outside of Hollywood. It's a film effort that is it, you get all your funds, you're either putting up the money yourself or you're getting it through the donations of others that are supporting you. Mm-hmm. And you're able to make, you're trying to make a a um, a serious representation of Star Trek. And it's not an easy task. You had to, you know, write the script, get the camera equipment. Um, I mean, you, you were the uh, one who spearheaded this project. Um um, did, are you? Uh, I guess a lot of it is. Do you, so you just mentioned you raised the funds. How much? Uh, how much comes from fans? How much do you front? You don't have to give details on this as far as it goes. But did you have to, when you first started? Was a lot of that coming out of your own pocket? Oh yes. I, I mean, I just know. I just. I just know. Initially, for, initially, the idea. It's amazing now because of how much far the organization has grown and how many people are now key stakeholders and how much. You know their direct involvement. How much of their time now? It's silly consuming. But initially, I I, mean, I had the, the when I had this idea, and I just thought initially I'm going to grab my best friends, um, and I'm going to grab you know my family, and I'm going to you know just grab everyone. I was going to make this happen. I was determined. I right, think that that right. is the one overriding that you have an idea you're passionate about, and you're so committed that nothing will stand in your way to make it happen. So with that, I was. I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna, you know, grab, and I had, to, I had to take out a lot of money, personal money, out of savings to buy even a camera equipment because I didn't know anything about camera equipment. And talking with camera operators, I didn't have much success in trying to get people committed, even offering to pay them. I wasn't, I didn't have any good feeling, a good sense that they would show up on day one of filming. So I had to, you know, put out money even for all the expensive audio and video equipment. Um, but initially when I, you know, putting all that money up front and then trying to get people to be as serious about it as I was initially was, was a challenge. Um, my best friend, Mike Bednar, who initially kind of was, okay, I'll, I'll do this. It sounds great. And getting, you know, we can play with props and costumes. And initially he wasn't all excited and he didn't want to be, he was fine with being a background guy. And he offered, instead of him to be one of the lead roles, he offered his wife, Holly, who, so Mike, who was going to be the engineer, <laughs> um, using the same name, um, we changed to Michelle Smithfield, and because um, I talked about maybe having the person instead of Scotty, make him Smitty. 
Um, and, and Smith, I knew a guy in the Navy whose name was Smith, and we always called him Smitty, and kind of like Scott, Scotty, and I was thinking kind of the same thing. I know it sounds hokey, but at the time, that was kind of the premise. And so Mike Smith, who was going to be Smitty, became Michelle uh, Smithfield, and we just called her Mike. And I just thought how cool that was. We just called a female, you know, whose name was Michelle, but she's kind of a tomboy. You know, I grew up with her in Starfleet, and it just carried over. So right. that worked out pretty well. And my other best friend, Rob Turner, who are a T, um, and we were, uh, Robert Tackett was going to be the science officer, the older guy who would give wisdom to this younger, ambitious, you know, commanding officer here. Um, he declined. He, he worked with us on the series trailer. We did our first film as a, a, a trailer. We did our first film as a trailer just so we learned how to make a film. And he was in that. However, afterwards, he said, you know, there was so much time commitments that he didn't expect. And moving forward, he kind he just gracefully backed out. And we've used him as extras in other film efforts, but he just couldn't, you know, dedicate the amount of time that was required for a film series like this. So I had to talk to the other stakeholders. And Mike, he said, well, you know what? I love this so much. And he stepped up to the plate, and he became... Robert Tackett. Okay. So it really worked out really well in terms of how the characters started to come together. And um, the series is starting to, I mean, although this, the, the series is more about these three characters, the series has kind of taken this interesting approach where the buddy system is, is actually more with Smithfield and Carter. That a lot of the, um, so far, I mean, storylines have kind of, and certainly in the last episode have kind of alluded to this, and there's this kind of um, big sister, little brother thing going on where they're best of friends. They were never romantically involved. They grew up in Starfleet together. They're serving together. And she kind of does her own thing with the engineering department. It's her, She reveres it as her ship. It's not Carter's ship. It's her ship. And he kind of just plays with it, you know, and, and drive, takes it out for a drive. But she's still the parent of it. And Tackett is, is more like, he's kind of more there to make sure the ship while they're away, and some of the other storylines that we've been working have show kind of Tackett um, more as the um, the father of the ship. Well, Carter and Smithfield are away. Um, are away. So we're showing a little bit more of some interesting dynamics. We've gotten a lot of feedback from fans that want to see more of the the Carter and Smithfield dynamic being explored. Right. I, I call it the buddy approach. Um, and I, I think that fans, they seem to be very much receptive to it, and they've asked us to see more of that. So, um, And there's another storyline that's being worked that really has those two. I mean, Tackett is very much involved. Like I said, the, the storylines evolve around those three pivotal characters, but there's going to be a lot more of the, I guess you could say in, in terms of you saw more action between Kirk and Spock than you did um, Kirk and McCoy. Not to say that there wasn't any, it was just more of uh, those two. Right. Now, you mentioned that, um, that uh, you know, after your first film, people began to come on board with this. What was the reception in general, the general public uh, that was actually watching your films? How were they responding? I mean, as, as you build up these four films, imagine each one is, you know, taken in a notch higher. Uh, the reception, has it been overall good? The reception has been overwhelmingly good. Um, 
here locally, I mean, we've expanded. I mean, we've gotten a lot of um, attention in the media um, as well. I mean, and then especially with our new folks down in Georgia. I mean, it's been very much um, overwhelming. People want classic Trek, and um, those that, and then those that just like what we've been doing, they've gravitated towards the love of being involved in a camaraderie project such as this. Um, but I think people want classic Trek, and that's what we're doing. We're pre- one thing about our series um, that differentiates us. I mean, I think some of the film series that are out there now, as you pointed out, there's some that are doing the next gen basis, Intrepid, and it's kind of in that timeline and it's during their thing. Phase two is doing the transition from, you know, from where the third season left off to the motion picture. We're doing classic Trek now. You can see certain things that are different in terms of, like I said, this captain, he wears a beard and facial hair. Didn't see a lot of that during the, the 60s. That's different. We wore field jackets, and we, had, we introduced a phaser rifle. So we're doing some things, and our C, CGI special effects, courtesy of Neo FX, um, although it looks like it did, it's kind of updated. So like I said, our, our tagline is classic Trek now. The I mean, we're, not, we're there will never be any kind of transitional phase. Um, one thing great about this whole project is that, you know, with Star Trek being the way it is, I mean, there's no real limits. But if we ever do decide to do anything movie era, it would Im- immediately jump from Turnabout Intruder to the Wrath of Khan. We'll jump into those costumes. And what's great is that we can show these as we age, as we get older, and we decide we don't want to do, you know, TOS, we can immediately jump right directly in the Wrath of Khan era with, you know, and show these characters. Maybe Smithfield and Tackett got married and they retired from Starfleet. Maybe they're working on a planet on a, on a project together where Smithfield is able to use her engineering and mechanical expertise and Tackett is able to use his scientific knowledge and expertise and the two of them collaborate together on a project that they love, you know, during the retirement. Maybe Captain Carter is now a fleet captain. Maybe he's an ambassador and he's doing something different. I mean, we could show, I mean, there's other storylines that we can explore. Um, so that's the one thing great about this project. But it'll always be, in my mind, classic Trek now. Right. And you're starting from, I assume, Farragut's five, you know, is, is starting a new five-year mission. So you Well, still I think, have... we, no, we, we started our series... Um, during the third season of Classic Trek, that's when things started. So our costumes are, um, I think in the captaincy, we had a mixture of the third season as well as some of the lore. Um, I think in moving, we've, we've, as we've gotten more episodes, more of them, we've just done a whole, I think on the second one, we had pretty much everyone was in, certainly all the principal characters and most of the background people were in the third season. Tunics, we might have had a few people in the lore background people but now pretty much we're in the third season of of classic trek what i was going to say was i mean for so you know you have a timeline you're about where the third season is in, in classic trek but with the, with the, with the Farragut, I, think I, I looked at the specter of the gun and i think that's where i took the number and that's where the captaincy starts if I remember correctly, but is Farrag- I mean, for your story though, Farragut is just starting. It's it, we're starting a new five-year mission. Is that would that be correct? Yeah, you could say that. I mean, the, the mission. I mean, I mean, basically, just like the Navy has all these ships. I mean, there's always a commanding officer. I, I think the mission of of Star Trek, although they had a five-year mission, 
I think the premise of, of you know, Gene had that in the um, the monologue, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I basically, the, the the mission of Star Trek is to explore planets. Um, you know, you're patrolling your sector space. You're, you're, I mean, a lot of those things about the the core mission overall. Um, it, it wouldn't change. He wouldn't change after any certain period of years. You might be trim, you might transfer to a different ship or new assignment. And I think I think tying in the Navy experience of, you know, every so years, so many number of years, you would transfer to a different command. I mean, people retire, they move, they they go on, they they're assigned to different ships. Same premise here. Captain Alvarez was in some sort of accident where he lost his legs or was injured. Um, he has no use of his legs. And then Captain Carter is now assigned the Farragut. So it's not... And we deliberately left out any kind of monologue. One, it would have been hokey and kind of parody. Everyone else has done that. It's it's not needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, people understand right. what, you know, what Star Trek is about. So I think one thing differentiating also about our series, unlike the original Star Trek, is Gene's concept was Wagner that trained the stars, We've kind of taken the gun smoke approach where more fights and stuff, at least to like to see. It's, it's, it's got its own signature now as a series, I think. Yeah. Now, for one of a nail, um, definitely at the end of the episode, I mean, and you, you touched on this briefly with, with some of your newer projects coming, uh, definitely setting up for a Mirror Universe episode. Um, can you give us any information about that, or do we need to wait till, uh, um that comes out? There may be, there may be, um, and it's, there may be, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if you saw a Mirror Universe episode where the name of the ship was Washington, um, that was great how that worked out, and more, I know there was some reluctance by the writer to incorporate that, but, I mean, with overwhelming results, everyone loves to talk about that scene at the end where the, the apple, it's so subtle, yet everyone that's a classic Trek fan knows what that's about i mean and it was um very poetically and beautifully done so you might you might see that i mean like i said the potemkin passed through the the synopsis that i wrote for that and was was going to be our mirror universe episode but um we'll see that's all i can say we'll see stand by yeah now now what do you personally uh get out of making a fan film I mean, beyond the joy of putting out a, a product here, what uh, what excites you about it? There's the creative aspect. I mean, initially, there's the creative aspect of coming up with a story and making it come together. A lot of these are just ideas, not just in my head, but in other people. So there's the creative aspect of forming this whole story. You want to make it, I mean, you want to make it enjoyable, charming enough. You, I personally like them to be self-contained and not serialized. Would I get out of it personally? At the end of the day, you can make an episode that will stand on its own that will be indicative of the quality of classic Trek. Right. For example, for One of a Nail, it's so beautifully done, and Mark Hildebrand owes a lot of credit to that success of that episode. Um, and it won a reward. You can take so many things. I mean, if you took out the Farragut characters, you could, in, you could replace them with characters from um, the Enterprise, and that story would still... Still do well. Absolutely. Um, It's it's so well done in terms of being a true classic trick episode. At the end of the day, when you make something of quality and 
Um, it's enjoyable, and there's a believability aspect, and you can watch it, and so many things come together, and um, there's so many aspects to comment on that question. Right, right. I'm sure um, that's a loaded question. You could probably talk. We could do an entire episode just on that. I'm sure. Uh, and I think also that the fact too with the internet. I mean, once it's out there and people have it, people have it in their homes. They, I mean, we've given out so many DVDs. I mean, even in the last few months, we've done a lot of promotional efforts, um, helps um, help promote the new film, and we've attended to functions, and we did the open house event. And we've given out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of DVDs. Starship Farragut now exists as something tangible that people will have. And we're already having new fans, kids and other people, that are in the Starship Farragut. They're following us and they're, they're fans just like Star Trek. So now you have this new fan base and people love and appreciate us. It, it's almost getting to the point where you know, people appreciate us almost as much as they appreciate the original series, if you follow me. I mean, it, right, it's something right. that has evolved into something much more than I think any of us certainly expected um, from the initial ideas of, you know, grabbing fans and friends. Fans, I mean, friends and family to make something, you know, classic Trek, and, and now it's just materializing to something, right. just, you know. Uh, with that being said, what do you think the future of independent fan films are? I mean, how does that relate to the uh, big picture? How you know, that's that's a very good question because the Internet has provided such a, a revolution with computer technology and the Internet. It's such a, a film revolution at this point where, like I said, people with a, a low-end camera and good video editing software um, can make films and of anything, any sort, whether it be, you know, Alien, Batman, Star Wars, whatever – and they can put it out. And as people get much more sophisticated, I mean, it's a whole internet. It's a whole film revolution right now. And the studios don't know, in my opinion, don't know what to make of these independent film efforts. They, you know, there's. They, I don't think they know what to do. I mean, they, I believe it is kind of copyright infringement, but it's done on the basis of the love of the product. So you have people that support you you really can't shut them down because it's not good PR. Um, you don't want to alienate your fan base. So it's like, what do you do? They're not making money. So you kind of, you kind of look the other way, but it's someday, I mean, it's going to be interesting. I don't know how it's going to, what the, um, I think you'll see more of them. You're not going to see less of them. And then, so, you know, the courts in terms of, if anything, um, you know, there's been ideas that people have talked about. Maybe this would be, franchise just like a licensed pocketbook novel would be but um i don't in my opinion i really don't see that happening um people that i spoke with i, I just you know I, I don't see that happening but you know it's, it's going to be interesting how it plays out i don't think it's going to go away and i don't think um i think as long as people are honest and they're not making money off of it and people aren't frauded and, and such and people are you know you're not bashing the studios and such like you know maybe they'll just keep going the way they are now but yeah. um i haven't seen anything definitively and it doesn't look like anything will be anytime soon it does put we'll the, see. it does put the uh it does put the studios in a bind though i mean you guys are making films and people are you know gravitating to them and uh you know and even though even though you're not making money it's it's you know if they're going to go online and watch a film that's taking away time that they potentially could be in either investing financially 
or time-wise into the original or the extended universe of of Star Trek? I mean, in terms of their time investment, looking up something, I don't, I don't know how much of that time is, you know, deferring away from, I guess, a paid venture on their end. But, or, I mean, there's nothing that stopped the studios from taking the concept of what, what we, within Fergit Films, have done as well as others, you know, redo it. I mean, the people still love Star Trek, and they've rebooted this, and I think they rebooted it successfully. Those that like classic Trek. And that's that's pretty much our core audience. Yeah. Uh, those that love, I mean, you have, I mean, we're we're not trying to do any of the other spinoffs. I mean, it's it's classic Trek. So, um, in terms of quantifying that that particular audience, um, I think it's a large one. But in the grand scheme, maybe not so much as the mainstream audience of just I don't know. I, I think also the original, you know, like Starship Farragut Phase Two. Maybe have been some of the inspiration by from the from the studio execs to do a original series uh, film. And I hope you don't mind me asking this, but uh, I assume you've seen the new Star Trek movie. Uh, what did you think of it if you saw it? Oh, I, I've seen it three times. Um, <laughs> I guess that tells us. Something. I, I loved it. I thought for a main. I mean, I'm still a classic purist Trek. To me, I went in very positive thinking, even when I heard that. You know, a year or two ago, that they were going to make this, they were going to make a movie and such. I I looked at it, and when I found out it was about classic Trek, I was, I was kind of. When I first heard about it, I was a little bit ambivalent because I felt, well, God, you know, what are they going to do? It, you know, they're going to change canon, and, you know, everything else. But then I thought to myself, well, they can't change what already exists. Classic Trek, um, it, it is what it is. I mean, no one's going to come into my home and you know raid my. DVD library and take all the you know episodes of, right. of Trek. They exist. They're out there. It's known. They can't change my, you know, they can't change it. Now, well, they can't take it away from me. I guess that's right. a better way of putting it. And I thought what they did was very respectful in the sense that they created a, although they rebuilt it and such, they made a point to say, well, it's an alternate timeline. So, and that I think that did that did a lot of things. One, it, it gave a, appreciation and respect to the fans, and two, it it made it very easy for them to create new stories. One of the things I'd read up on one of the news magazine articles about Star Trek, and in conjunction with the new film, was Ron Moore said it, that when they were writing all this, it got so point with all the spinoffs with Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and Voyager and such, and I guess Enterprise as well, that they were actually limited. They were boxed in. Um, because ideas that they would come up would actually, you know, would, would have was already done, or it was you couldn't do it because it goes against canon, and it just so I said, why, you know, so for them to come up with this idea and they threw canon out the window, it opened all these avenues of story ideas. Mm-hmm. So I, I I watched it. I, I've seen the film I mentioned three times, and I'm sure I'll probably see it at least one more before it, it leaves the theater. So I thought it was a good film. I thought. For the just entertainment value, a lot of action. I it was great. I mean, a lot of comedy. Um, I thought it was well done. I thought that they did the best. Let's say uh, I I thought that Paramount and the J.J. Abrams team did the best that they could do um, with a very challenging franchise because you're looking at something over 40 plus years, many TV spinoffs and movies, and they took something um, as beloved as Trek 
and they were able to. Um, I thought they did a great job. Yeah. So I, I, I liked it. Yeah, we 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 enjoyed the film too. I thought, I was very satisfied with it. Um, I know there's a vocal, a, a small but vocal group of haters out there, but um, um, no, I I really liked it. I, I'm sure I'm going to see it again before it leaves the theater. I think the most important thing is that I left entertained, you know, entertained by, you know, original Star Trek again in some ways, you know. Yeah, and, and what's good about it, I think the the fact that they got younger actors and they, 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 they did change the timeline. Kirk was, when he assumed command, he was 34. Um, he's now 25 or he's in his mid-late, mid-20s, I guess, 25, 26, whatever. So now that these characters are younger, they can do a, a series, you know, series of films. And like I said, Canon is thrown out the window. They have new stories they can do. And I think for a much broader audience, the way that they did it, it's going to pull in a lot more newer fans. Um, it's, it's even this weekend, it still did very well. And it's third weekend, third weekend out from the premiere, um, from when it first came out, you know, May 8th weekend. So, um, it's still doing well. People, I mean, I know that Paramount folks are already, you know, talking, you know, script two and, and these these people. Like you said, you left to entertain. Very good film. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I yeah. believe that's all. Yeah, John, I, we're, I guess we're going to wrap this up. Uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, spending some time with us, letting us interview you. And, uh, um, yeah, we really I'll appreciate help. it. Sure. Uh, I, I, would, I would encourage you to seek out other people within our project. Um, we have other dedicated people within Farragut Films that could speak to um, a variety of different issues. Mike Bednar, in addition to being producer, actor, he's also a, a resident prop maker. Um, you have Mark Hildebrand, who's also actor, producer, and writer and director. He could talk to you some of those aspects. We have Holly Bednar, who gets a lot of our talented people. And you have... Um, you have Michael Strzok of NeoFX, who does all of our CGI and special effects. He also, a lot of the post-production efforts, he would be, these are very good people that I could tell you about other variety of, um, of our project. I'm glad you, you asked me to speak, and I encourage you to speak to others within our organization. Oh, we it's really not just, it's just, this is not just, it's, although I'm executive producer, these are, it's not the um, John Broughton show. These, this is Farragut Films, and we're a group of, very dedicated folk that makes um, classic Trek now. So very, very cool. Feel free now, to talk to them too. Can we uh, can we find their email addresses or anything on the site? Oh yeah, all their addresses, all their contact information. You can go to Farragut Films, okay. and you can find all their and on the manage or the contact us page. It has it much more clear, I think, than um, right. or the Starship Farragut website. But yeah, we're not. Our information is readily available, so okay. I encourage you to seek them out. Now, uh, it does bring up a good point. We haven't told people that are listening to the show where to find your uh, where to find your films. How can they go about finding the films we've been talking about? They can go to start. Okay. Sure, they can go to starshipfarragut.com, and um, they can see us. And I should point out that you made me think about our films. There's also the Farragut. Um, I think it's farragutanimated.com, which is the animated version of our live action series. So we're the only fan we're the only film effort of Star Trek to have both a live action as well as the animated version. So Perfect. check that out. Both Power Source, I think is the first one and that's gonna be out um I think sometime in June, several weeks from now. And then we have the other one that from what I'm 
before the end of the year, the um, other one that needs the many would be out. But Michael Strzok from the OFX is spearheading that effort. And I, you might want to really consider speaking with him because I'm sure he would have a lot to tell you about that whole project, um, you know, going from live action, animated, you know, what's involved in the process. Um, you know, instead of filming, you're, or, you know, you're now sitting in front of a microphone and speaking. So it's a little bit different, but yeah, um, you can do a lot more creatively as well. So. Right, Will you be at uh, Shore Leave uh, this year? Yes, Starship Farragut is planning to be at Shore Leave. Okay, but we're going we're going to be at the Wrath of Khan convention this weekend. That's um, a film festival, as well as a convention, sci-fi convention, uh, down at Panama City Beach, or is it Panama Beach City? Yeah, Panama. Um, Something like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's all right. Panama City, Florida. Um, Great. Right, so, well, we're going to be at Shore Leave, so we'll make a point to introduce ourselves and meet you there. Oh, great! So. And you can you can definitely um, you get some face time with the the producers and actors of Starship Fair. Get there. Hey, who knows? We can maybe we'll do some uh, interviews right on the spot there. Then that would be great. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us tonight. Yes, John. No, no problem. Much. 